Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our Urgent Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing for Alberta on Friday, September 24th, 2021. This last-minute update is live-streaming from the traditional and ancestral territory of many peoples. We are grateful to live and work in Alberta, a province on the traditional territory of 48 different First Nations and the unceded homeland of the Métis Nation. Today's conversation is being shared in ASL. To ensure access to completely accurate information, closed captioning will be uploaded after the live stream is complete. This conversation for the public is being shared live on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Today's briefing will aim to be 30 minutes in length. We will be hearing from a variety of Protect Our Province Alberta Coalition team members. Thank you everyone for joining us today. We're trying not to call these urgent briefings very frequently, but given where we are in the Delta wave and everything that has unfolded over this last week, we felt it was time for a community conversation. After which we will take any media questions and then offer some final thoughts. I would like to begin our conversation today by publicly stating we are not aware of phase one of triage protocols being enacted in Alberta. But we do know that the current measures in place are unlikely to prevent us getting there. Which is why we need to openly discuss some very challenging topics. Topics that we do not want to be addressing, but in all honesty, we have to. Operation Laser military assistance in our province is about to begin, while simultaneously the restrictions introduced by our provincial government signal to Albertans that it is business as usual. I can go to the mall. My kids can go to overcrowded classrooms, but 75% of pediatric surgeries have been postponed, and our medical system has moved into a mode that is not only unsustainable, it is unimaginable in a Canadian healthcare context. But nonetheless, here we are. What now is the question that I have for our Protect Our Province Coalition. What now? With me today, I have Dr. Schwartz, Dr. Bakshi, Renee, PhD, Rayanne, I can't speak apparently because I'm really feeling it today. I am in, yeah, not not the best of states. Thank you, Rayanne Booker. <laughs> um, Dr. Asadi, Dr. Gasparovich, Dr. Hardcastle, and Dr. Parks. Thank you all very much for making time to be here this afternoon. What now? So I, I guess um, it's it's worthwhile just to uh, take a step back and, and just describe the situation that we're in right now, just so so people have an idea. So as uh, Michelle stated, we are not in stage one of uh, the quote unquote triage protocol, but things are still really grim and really desperate in the hospital, in the ICUs in particular. Uh, so um, the the military has been scrambled. The um, morgues were at least at one point last week full. Um, surgeries are cancelled and you know this is really a, a truly dire situation um, and yet you know this weekend 20,000 fans are going to be piling into uh, an arena to watch the Flames and the Oilers play. 
there is a, a complete disconnect from the reality that we're seeing on the ground to the response of uh, the, the policymakers in our government. Um, you know, even the fact that this is a state of emergency and we're not even going to get any information about ICU capacity, about the status um, of our hospitals until Monday afternoon is a, a big uh, cognitive dissonance. Um, so let me open it up to others to comment. Um, I'll echo what Dr. Schwartz said that I think what we're feeling as protect our province as healthcare workers, as people that are advocating uh, continuously is the big disconnect. And I think we are hearing or seeing or experiencing from our colleagues how dire it is in the hospital. Um, talking to my colleagues uh, who are on the COVID units who are in the ICUs, they are at a level of despair that I don't think any of us have ever seen or heard. They are seeing so much death. And, you know, we've seen death throughout this pandemic. Uh, in wave two, we saw a high number of deaths. And I think what is different, and not to take away from any death, because any death is quite sad and tragic, especially in, a, in now a preventable wave, but we're seeing younger and younger patients die. And any physician can tell you or any healthcare worker can tell you that when you see a young person die and you hear about all of the people that they left behind, it leaves an imprint. Now multiply that by a number per day in each ICU, and then multiply that by the number of ICUs that we have in this province. And the difference now is that these folks, these ICU physicians, these nurses are not getting the time to process these deaths, to process those emotions because they're going on to the next patient that needs them because the volume is so high. We are surging into spaces that are non-traditional ICU spaces. We are calling in nurses from every facet of the hospital system to try to just plug the holes. We are not very far away from running out of capacity, running out of staffing. Um, and this is not a scenario that we need to be in, but we are in. And, you know, our policymakers can still do things to help us a couple weeks from now. But the reality is, is whatever they do today is not going to change the course of next week. And that's, I think, very frightening for all of us. Yeah, for sure. I think, um, you know, I'm not a critical care nurse. Uh, I'm a palliative and oncology uh, nurse. And uh, I spent a couple of days, a few days last week in the ICU at Foothills, and um, you can't unsee what you see there. Um, and in my role, I'm used to dealing with people who are dying. Um, I think what's really hard about this is that it's preventable deaths that's making it so challenging. And knowing that this didn't have to be like this, um, my heart goes out to all the critical care nurses, all the nurses who and healthcare staff who've been doing this for so many months now. Um, you know, it's just it's heartbreaking that it's come to this. And I think in some ways I feel like we're preaching to the choir here because I've seen the comments uh, on our on our briefings and updates. And I, I know all of you are doing so much. You're doing whatever you can to keep yourselves updated, um, you know, of the latest information and you're asking what can you do to help and you're doing all you can. And so I think all we can do is keep thinking of those people in our communities who are most vulnerable and keep trying to protect them and uh, and yeah, and just um, get vaccinated and, and you know continue to answer questions of our family and friends who might have questions about the vaccines and be scared or worried or whatever the case may be. So thanks. I think what strikes me in addition to the disconnect that you're talking about, I mean, 
this has been going on for so long and we wanted it to be over so badly. And so you want to pretend that it's not happening. Um, but the fact of the matter is that the healthcare crisis is the worst that it's ever been. And what, what really scares me right now is that there's really no margin for error anymore. Um, and you know, any one super spreader event can be what takes us into the absolute worst into the nightmare scenario. And, and it, it, for me, that's, what's the most frightening is that, um, we're just on a nice edge right now and we just can't afford to be complacent at all. And we can't afford to pretend that things are normal when they're simply not. I can go ahead from a from a, a regulatory perspective. Um, the current rules involve this complex set of rules uh, for those in the restriction exemption program. Those have difficult to understand exceptions. There's a second set of rules for those outside of the program, which have complex exemptions. Um, some of these exemptions make very little sense from a public health perspective, and this undermines them. Um, these were hastily implemented, which led to things like forgeable proof of vaccines. People can't understand these rules, which means they're not easily complied with and won't be easily enforced. Layered on that, we have um, new exemption orders coming out from the Chief Medical Officer of Health, municipal bylaws trying to fill the gaps left by the government. Frankly, the, the time for complex, nuanced regulatory schemes was a month ago. We don't have time for people to wait around for explanations, exemption orders, clarifications, follow-up orders, um, and presumably for the government to address the, the issue of retail, who we were led to believe would be part of this. The government has squandered the time needed to develop a complex system of rules. Um, you know, for these reasons, I, I think that one simple set of rules limiting us to essential businesses not only has the public health advantages that I think you'll be hearing about, but also has, it will be much simpler from a regulatory perspective. And that time would give the government the opportunity to develop a thoughtful evidence-based vaccine passport system, and they could work in conjunction with affected stakeholders and, and properly educate the public. Um, so it's just not the time for these complex rules. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And uh, I think I said the exact same thing today is that the time to be nuanced um, and and cute with the rules, you know, the time to, to do, you know, fancy stick handling to try to thread the needle, if I can mix all my metaphors together, um, was a month ago. Um, we've blown right past that. We are now at a point where we need to be managing this with, with a cudgel. We need to be using a blunt instrument that applies both to those who are unvaccinated and those that are vaccinated. And I know this is going to be unpopular uh, because we've been, you know, praising the, the benefits of vaccines to be able to keep people from getting sick. But the fact is that we are so desperate right now. Our healthcare system is literally hanging by a thread. And I, I, I don't think we can afford anything but a full and complete shutdown of, of everything but essential businesses. You know, this includes, sadly, I think this needs to include schools at this point um, because, you know, we are just in, in so much trouble with, with the, the current state of, of ICU occupancy. 
My understanding on the numbers from today is that there were 17 new ICU admissions and that AHS managed to make 20 new ICU beds overnight. How long can that happen for? Yeah, How can, much more space? Thank you. Yes, Dr. Parks, please. Sorry, I was going to jump in and answer that to the, so I, I've uh, been in the media a bit today and there's a bit of confusion. So I want to be really clear. This isn't about ventilators. We, we have tons of ventilators. Like I, I don't want to get in an argument match about that. Cause it's not that it's about the people, the human beings to run those ventilators when there's a sick person on them. And, and that's not infinite. We will not be able to continue the heroic measures everybody's done. I'm super proud of my team in AHS and across this province. It's unbelievable what they've done to add capacity and double our beds, but we can't go on. And you know, it, it's the, the simplest way I can tell you is we're on the edge of the cliff that the, everybody in the media is very focused right now today about the critical triage. That is falling off the cliff. That is telling life or death and not being able to save people we normally could have saved. So none of us want to fall off the cliff. We've taken steps towards the edge of the cliff that we all wish we'd never done. And there's lots of them, but we're on the edge of the cliff. And I can tell you the other thing, 17 people dying in, you know, today and the numbers in the last couple of days, that's one or two Humboldt bus crashes every single day in Alberta. And, and when one of one, when it happens once, everybody notices and is concerned when it happens every single day, our government seems to just feel like they can ignore it and to see business as usual out there while we are giving a national SOS to the, the national government saying to come help us. It, it's a disconnect that I just can't understand. And, it, and I don't think any of my colleagues that are trying their hardest, nurses, respiratory therapists, anybody in the hospital can understand. We need a fire break. We need this transmission to be stopped. And if we don't, those bus crashes are gonna happen every day and they're gonna get worse and worse. And we're gonna get to the point where none of us wanna be where we can't even care for people that don't have COVID, that have Crack, bus crashes or heart attacks or children that get sick and we gotta stop before we get there so we're just pleading we we need our government to show some leadership and do something yeah i was just gonna uh, echo what dr park said and i think i think for context it's important to know that you know in pre-pandemic times particularly right now so we are entering usual influenza season we're usually entering a time where we see a little bit more volume in the hospital. And so our operations team, and I have to give a big shout out to our operation teams in the hospitals, they are the ones that run the hospital, that find the places to put patients, to find the staff. And so they're very adept at playing the game of chess when it comes to where can we put people, how can we move things around so that we can still have the right space for the right person. And so generally we are adept at doing that. We're not adept at doing that when we have no space, when we have no people, but the patients are still coming in. And we will never turn away patients because that's not what healthcare does. That's not what hospitals do. But there is a finite number of chess moves that we have left to be able to deal with what we're dealing with now. And, and I want to remind everybody that's watching this and I remind our government that we're only able to do this because we've canceled surgeries, because we've, we've electively, selectively 
or urgently put people on a wait list that is indefinite. We don't know when these surgeries are going to happen. Those patients don't know when their surgeries are going to happen. And people are going to have bad outcomes from that. And so what we're doing now might seem like, oh, we're handling the capacity, we're handling what's coming in, but we're handling it at such a high cost that it's not going to be tenable for much longer. And when I say much longer, I mean days. We're not talking weeks and months, we're talking days. So, so one of, I'm gonna let uh, Dr. Gasperich. So I wanted to talk about numbers here that what is scary, like we are in this terrible situation, but we could really turn it, make a sharp U-turn almost instantly. If we would adapt and we have all the tools necessary, we have relative, relatively high level of vaccinations. We have, we have tools to make a lockdown, to make a fire break. Uh, we have money to get give people to stay home. We are not poor country, so so it's doable. If we would do that, we could achieve like having time of four days. So in four days, like once we reach a peak, then in four days we could have the number of cases coming, which would really like makes it so much easier for hospitals because the cases translate to hospitalizations and then they translate to ICUs and deaths. So it can be really sharp going down. So the more stringent measures and the earlier they are introduced, the better and faster eff effect and the shorter they need to last to achieve the same effect. So and, and, okay, and even more, if we, so basically, if we would do firebreak right now, like really decisive, and if we would be absolutely serious about it, then in less than seven weeks, we can stop all community transmission and then have normalcy back and prevent fifth wave. So ensure that the disaster we have now will not repeat in the future. And yeah, and all, all of this is doable. And especially like stopping the disaster we have right now is doable within days if we act. Thank you. So what I hear is like we need to harness the power of exponential decay. Like it's one thing your effective reproductive number is close to one and things are, they might slowly decrease, but we can't afford that anymore. That means that the people that you guys are talking about who are waiting for their surgeries, who are awaiting their referrals for their mental health and addictions program, they're going to be waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And we just can't afford that. And that's assuming that we don't fall off the cliff via some super spreader event that might occur or, you know, ongoing, ongoing increases. So we, I absolutely agree that we need a sharp turn downwards. I, th I think this comes back to that sort of normalization of trauma that Dr. Bakshi has talked about and that, Dr. Parks um, referred to that, you know, when, when, when there's a humble bus crash every day, it loses its, its impact. Um, and, you know, when we first had, a, um, when we first started convening these pressers, uh, which was, uh, I think, four weeks ago, at that point, I said that I had never seen my IC colleagues as demoralized as I had at that point. And, those ICU colleagues have been working every single day. There has been no respite because hospitals that normally would have four um, ICU uh, intensivists working now have 12 working. 
Um, and so all of those traumas every day, you know, of having to, you know, discontinue care on a, on a 30 year old, um, having to, um, you know, stop a, a code um, on, on uh, a mother of young children, for example, there's no time to process that. And it's just building up and building up and building up. The other thing is that while we look at those uh, number of um, surge beds increasing, and it really is heroic, the sort of Tetris that they've been able to play in order to expand the number, it's important to, to um, keep in mind that there's a trade-off. So it's great that we are not at the point of having to decide which patient is going to be in a bed, but what we're doing is we're diluting the meaning of ICU care by moving patients into areas that are not traditional ICUs. They might be an operating room. They might be a post-anesthetic um, recovery room. Um, and patients that are on the ward are getting care that is only safely provided with the sort of monitoring that we would traditionally provide in the ICU. And so there's this trade-off. None of us want to be making those decisions of who's going to access care, who gets to live, who's going to die. Um, but although we aren't at that point yet, the decisions that we are making are just as difficult in, in a somewhat different way. We've had a couple of questions coming through on the folks at HomeSide. Um, people are hearing the, we have lots of ventilators um, obviously we are having human shortages, not shortages, just more, more patients than humans can care for. Um, folks were asking about medication shortages, um, in addition to not enough hands on deck because the deck is too big. Uh, I can speak to that maybe, um, Certainly with medication shortages, you know, first of all, all, the context is that COVID is new, right? We're still, even though we're 19 months in, it is still new. And so we are still learning, reviewing evidence about how we can treat COVID, how we can um, try to limit how bad the outcome is. And so over the last few months, um, Health Canada and Alberta Health Services have been able to provide uh, the hospitals with several medications, uh, monoclonal antibodies that have shown some benefit in reducing severe outcomes. Uh, but with that, um, we are certainly looking at a supply problem. And I don't know that, and I can't speak to know that that is simply an AHS issue. I think that's probably more of a federal issue that we are not able to keep up with the demand that we need. Um, and I think that's that's what we're seeing, right? We're, we're seeing too many patients with COVID in the hospital who would benefit from a medication that is in short supply. And it's about supply and demand and trying to keep up with that. And so I think uh, that's another reason that we really have to have a fire break now is that if we can't keep up with the demand and we can't give the basic standards of care just based on the rapidity of how patients are coming in, we really need to do something now because we cannot produce this medication overnight. We can't get medications uh, dealt with right away. And if, if, we, um, if we continue to see this trajectory, we're going to have more and more patients that will not get this. Um, and then the second part of that question with the human resources, I think we've all talked about this at great length now, you know, to, uh, to an ICU patient that requires a ventilator, requires a respiratory therapist that knows how to run that vent, needs uh, nurses, uh, probably multiple nurses on shift to help move the patient, prone the patient. We've talked a lot about proning on these uh, platforms where patients are placed on their uh, abdomen or their belly. Uh, that requires an entire team. 
uh, you need ICU docs. And as Dr. Schwartz mentioned, you know, these ICU docs have been working continuously without a break. And so they're getting tired. Um, and then you need allied health, you need pharmacy, you need all sorts of people to support one ICU patient. And now we're talking about over 300 patients and we just don't have the people. I just wanted to add a note on the, the medication shortage issue. Uh, we talk about COVID shining a light on other problems in the healthcare system. Long-term care is, is, of course, the example that people always give. But we've had a, a persistent decades-long problem with medication shortages in Canada. And there are many medications for which we're often on the, on the margin and, and Health Canada and policymakers have to scramble to, to try to find other options or sometimes patients actually through their pharmacist try to, to order it in from, from out of country. And so I think that when we talk about what should we be doing after COVID to improve our, our healthcare system, I think dealing with drug shortages in, in Canada is certainly something that has to be on, on that list. COVID helped us realize even more than we did before just how fragile some of those, those supply chain issues are, particularly when demand is bumped up. Yeah, that's such an important point. I'll jump into just to echo what Dr. Bakshi said about um, human resources. So again, the nurses in ICU and critical care are highly specialized. So I have more than 20 years experience as a nurse, um, but I can tell you my role in ICU is not a critical care nurse. I'm, a, I'm considered a helper RN or a helper nurse. So I can help turn patients, I can help with eye care, mouth care, things like that. But I don't know what to do with ventilators or all the multitude of, of different intravenous meds that they're on and, and different things like that. So it, it's not just plunky nurses from other areas. Um, and, you know, there, there are some other nurses from other areas that perhaps have those critical care skill sets. Um, but it's, it's not all nurses um, that have those skills. Um, and, and just to also reiterate, it takes a minimum of five people to to prone a patient. So, um, and that would be, you know, a, a reasonably small person. Uh, so you need five people at least to turn the person over onto their stomachs if they're being ventilated. So it's, it's definitely a challenge for sure. Unless anybody can... One more. Go, go, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, um, unless anybody think that we're going to be rescued by the military here, you know, they've committed to sending eight ICU nurses, which is fantastic and eight IC nurses, um, you know, they, they, they truly um, will make a difference. But if you think, you know, they're working 12 hour shifts, so that's the potential for four extra beds. Uh, and that's, you know, working every 12 hours, basically. Uh, so it's, um, that, that, that's one, one major challenge. Um, uh, back to the, the medication issue, I know that uh, one of the anti-inflammatories that we use in patients that are in the ICU um, which, you know, we now have good evidence that it does reduce deaths is really on a, a touch and go uh, basis. So every day we have to call, you know, the, the, the central pharmacy to find out whether it's in stock or not. And it changes day to day. And uh, so it really is um, very tenuous. Is there another question? Because I, I was just going to add quickly too, just along the resources too. So there's some confusion about uh, you know, the whole discussion around, are there enough ventilators and are we putting people on ventilators when they need it? And I'll tell you, because of the resource challenges we're talking about now, uh, you know, there are many patients on wards and hospitals that we normally wouldn't keep them there 
and they would be in ICUs because the if we if we were normal operating procedures, um, and we can't do that now. And so so now it, it's become almost where sometimes the only option to put them on ventilators is when they deteriorate to the point where they have crashed. We would call it or cold blue or got so sick that they need us to immediately intervene. Um, but I want to just raise that you know if you get outside of the big hospitals. There's lots of patients in smaller rural places now that for sure would have been transported to higher level of care that can't go to higher level care now because of the resource issues we talked about, but also now we got to transport a sick patient and transport through our province and transporting say maybe someone that's from the north, far north Fort Mac and has to go to an ICU in Lethbridge maybe. So and those human resources and all those pieces, those are rationing and changes to our normal operation that we're doing every day now because of the capacity issues everybody's talking to. So I just, I just want that people to make clear, you know, clearly understand why we're saying it's so, it's so difficult and, and why we're, we're pleading and begging for immediate intervention by our government. On that transportation note, as we've started to, or as we've continued the conversation around the possibility of patients leaving Alberta. I noticed today on socials that there were a lot of your wonderful colleagues in Ontario saying they would help. As a human, as an Albertan, if the situations were reversed, and I was hearing all of you say that you would help them, and simultaneously watching 20,000 people in a stadium on the same day, I wouldn't know where to put that for any of you. And so I guess I'm curious around, I know we briefly touched on it, but how, how can we reasonably expect the rest of Canada to want to help us when it feels like our government is refusing to help us in the first place? Well, I'll just say that I know all of our Canadians want to help us, that we would want to help everybody else. So, uh, but I hear your, your, your question and your question's very valid is how can we be sending out an SOS to the country saying our ship is sinking and we need people to come help us, you know, because the ship is sinking and yet our government won't even pick up a bail and start bailing, right? Like where we are, our government is signaling that is business as usual uh, while they're sending out a national SOS. I, I, I don't know how to put that together. Uh, and I don't blame fellow Albertans right now. This is, I wanna be so clear, like my, my Albertans out there that don't see the hospitals and don't know what's happening, they're following the lead of our government who is telling them everything's okay and we don't need restrictions and we don't need this. And, and, and so, they don't know how to make of it too. So I, I think everybody across the country will help to the, uh, their ability, but they have their own issues too. And they have their own capacity struggles, um, maybe not near as bad as ours, but I, I do, I, I struggle a lot with that disconnect of our government's mixed messaging for sure. And I think that the average Albertan would much rather have their neighbor get their cancer surgery in a timely fashion than sit at a full capacity hockey game. I don't think it's compatible with the priorities of the average Albertan. 
at the at the same time, I want to be careful not to be overly critical of of the um, the businesses that are making decisions that are in accordance with Alberta health policies. You know, they're being told it is safe to fill up twenty thousand people into a stadium, um, especially if everybody's got you know a, a vaccine card uh, or a negative test within seventy two hours. Now we know that a ten year old could forge a vaccine card with with uh, with prowess, um, but you know, even uh, even having said that, it's you know there's there's a lot of mixed messaging, uh, and there you know we're just not seeing the leadership that we need. Um, we're we're not getting the the medical leadership um, in in you know somebody conveying that this is not okay. Even if ninety nine percent of people are vaccinated, when we're talking about twenty thousand people in an inside space, spending two hours next to one another, yelling and chanting, you know, eating popcorn, drinking beer. Basically, you know, we're asking for a, a, a mass, um, a, a mass infection event, a, a mass outbreak. And, you know, even if, you know, half a dozen individuals end up coming to the, to the ICU because of that, our ICUs cannot accommodate another half a dozen individuals. On that note, I think this is a question probably for Dr. Hardcastle. We have had a number of folks in the stream right now asking what they should do if someone they know has falsified a vaccine passport or exemption letter or verification, whatever one wants to call that editable PDF. And they know that that person is planning on using it to access businesses and or events. Yeah, so I, unfortunately, I don't know the exact exact website, but there is a, a, a website to report individuals who aren't complying with with public health orders, and so certainly you can report through through there. Um, and 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 they have taken and have followed up on reports. I think the the bigger issue, though, that I, I want to highlight because I, I can't think of the day of the exact website is that you know we don't we shouldn't have to be in a position where this is even a thing that people are wondering if if people's proof of vaccine is forged. Had the government dealt with this in a in a timely manner, rather than slapping together the the um, uh, elect the technology that they did, we wouldn't be in the position that that people are having to to wonder if others are are forging. So I think that's the that's the bigger problem. And and the other problem is this is a a government that has consistently under enforced its own public health rules. And so it isn't clear what sort of follow-up they would they would do um, in terms of people who who are forging those documents. But you know, for, for those who, who may be, I guess, watching and thinking about forging them, you know, there are criminal penalties associated with forging that kind of document. And so it really isn't worth getting caught. Um, stay home or, or get vaccinated. As we get ready to say goodbye, um, it's a Friday. As Dr. Schwartz indicated, we won't even hear any numbers from the government again until Monday. We know that last weekend, um, 22 deaths were reported to Alberta Health. Um, those numbers came out on Monday. We know that in between Tuesday and today, 
so the same amount of days when you go from Friday to Monday, Tuesday to today, that we lost 77 more Albertans during that time period. I'm, and I think a lot of other Albertans, are really worried about what we will find out on Monday. So as a coalition, I guess, is is there anything else that we as individuals can be doing or we as a collective, if our voices are really loud, can be doing so that we don't triple that number again over the next four days? Lobby, lobby the government for a fire break. So talk to the people, talk to the government. I mean, in the meantime, so, social physical distance yourself, wear masks, get vaccinated. If you're not, talk to loved ones who are hesitant. Uh, but but we need to, this is a public health matter. We, we need to get our public to, our, our leaders to act. And so lobby, lobby the government, write them letters, call them, let them know how worried you are. Uh, it, it makes a difference. It really will. I think my, my main takeaway that I, I want to leave people with is, is also to push the government and also to push the government for a, a temporary uh, shutdown of, of non-essential businesses. Um, and, and that will give the government time to design a, a better regulatory system for, for vaccine passports and for businesses that are in the program and out of the program and to consult appropriately with businesses to develop a more secure vaccine passport and to, to properly educate the public on the rules. They need time to pass good laws and not only will will uh, enhance public health measures now obviously be beneficial from a public health perspective but will also give them that time needed to to fix the rules so that when we do phase in uh, a vaccine passport system it will be uh, easier to comply with and, and easier to enforce because people will actually understand it I would echo what people before me said so I would like people to lobby the government, to ask the government to act, to to enact the fire break now and get us back to normalcy, get us back to safe place. Uh, so please like, write, write, call your elected official and ask for temporary shutdown of non-essential businesses, temporary shutdown and support for schools. And yeah, ask them to for us to be safe, uh, ask them for sharp decrease in cases and ask them for ending COVID here. Thank you. Well, I'll quote the, uh, the brilliant, extraordinary uh, Ziet Faisal, who's in our group as well. And he said uh, in his thread yesterday that he posted, we're making history in real time that people in all sorts of disciplines will study later, influence that for the better, however you can. Uh, and I think there's lots we can do. So I'm a huge fan of supporting small businesses. I live in Cochrane. Um, order takeout if you can support the small businesses, particularly the ones that are observing the, the restrictions. Um, watch the hockey game this weekend on TV. Um, go Oilers, um, but watch it on TV. Help support a family to isolate. If you know that someone in their family is positive, you can drop off meals, offer to get groceries and things like that. Um, there's lots of little things that will add up to big things um, if we all just um, keep trying to to influence this for the better in, in whatever small way we can. So um, 
you know, I, I think this analogy that, that we've been hanging on um, pushed back as, as far as we can possibly go uh, on the edge of a cliff and, and we're desperately trying not to fall uh, is, is an apt one. Um, you know, once we do maximize our resources uh, in terms of, of, of healthcare capacity, um, the, the, the knock-on effects are going to be enormous. Um, and, you know, the number of deaths are going to, to accelerate. Um, we're already facing a, a backlog in surgery that's, you know, likely going to take years to overcome. Um, and, you know, none of this is okay. And, you know, ultimately this needs to be corrected with policy. This is a public health emergency and the government needs to act like it. Um, I think one of the big things that we all can do as individual citizens is work at countering misinformation. You don't need to be a physician. You don't need to be a scientist. There's plenty of resources. Uh, our, our briefings are one of them. We don't need to be waiting to see body bags in the street to know that we're in trouble. We are in trouble now. We are seeing a collapse of the healthcare system. We are seeing uh, uh, operations and physicians and nurses working beyond a capacity that is unsustainable. And so talk to your neighbors, talk to your brother-in-law, talk to your sister-in-law. Let them know it is not business as usual, that we can continue to support, as Rianne said, small businesses. We can support uh, the economy without putting lives at risk. So counter misinformation, go into those comment sections, refer people to the right places, let them know it is not business as usual and that we need every single Albertan to help us to get through this. Thank you all so very much for being available to take questions from all over the province today. Um, I've heard hashtag firebreakAB. I've heard that we need to stop everything and that we need support from our elected officials to do that. Financial support for businesses and humans, reinstating of isolating of close contacts and testing of close contacts. And that we really, really, really need to find every single possible mechanism so that we don't take that one step, that one step that is left before we plummet over that cliff. We'll see you again on Tuesday. Please, please stay safe, Alberta. And remember, COVID-19 is airborne. Wear the best mask you have access to. And vaccines really do save lives. And so do every single one of these amazing humans and all of their colleagues that have been working tirelessly for the last 19 months. They really need our help. There's only so many of them 
and the number of lives that need to be saved keep increasing every single day. Thank you very much. See you Tuesday. 